So uh, we're starting this new series today, Life That Is Truly Life. It's a series we've been looking forward to for several months uh, to dive into with you. Uh, Jesus said in John 10.10, this amazing phrase, he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do we have that slide? I thought we did. There we go. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And he's talking about not just his followers uh, at that time, but all of us, everybody who would come afterwards. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Life to the full. That sounds like something we would want, I believe. But what does that mean? What does it mean to have life to the full? I, I don't think it means that we just sort of have things the way we want them all the time. Because Jesus is the author of life. He's the one who gave us our lives. He's the giver of the life that's fully life. And so he's the one who defines what it looks like to live a full life. He's the one who kind of sets the parameters of that. And if you pay attention to what Jesus says and what the other New Testament writers said, the life that's fully life includes denying yourself. It includes taking up your cross and following Jesus, seeing things as he does, aligning our priorities with God's priorities, serving others, put other, putting other people first. So clearly, having life and having it to the full, as Jesus defined it, doesn't just mean it's all about us and what we want. It can't be just about that. I also think it doesn't mean, when he's talking about having life and having it to the full, it doesn't mean just sort of going to heaven one day. I think sometimes we can think of it in those terms, like, well, yeah, like I'll put my faith in Jesus and I'll be saved and one day I get to go to heaven. But when you, when you take into account the whole New Testament picture, uh, the picture of eternal life in the New Testament is that it is occurring now. Like our life now is part of eternal life. Now, yes, it will continue in a new way, in an amazing way, once we physically die and go to the place that we call heaven But our life now is meant to be part of that story. So it's not just having what we want, and it's not just we go to heaven one day. So so what does this look like to access, to enjoy this life that is the full life that Jesus spoke about, especially in the midst of stresses and strains and pain and confusion in this life? Um, Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy Uh, chapter 6, verse 19, I believe it is. Paul put it this way, take hold of the life that's truly life. Take hold of the life that's truly life. That's where we got the title of this series, Life That's Truly Life. Paul said that, take hold of the life that's truly life. And what's remarkable about that phrase when Paul said it is he was writing to people who were already Christians. And so he was saying there is a need, even for people who place their faith in Christ, to reach out and grasp this full life that has been offered by Jesus. Now, if we really internalize what Paul says here, it's a little bit unsettling. Because it means we can be saved by Christ. We can be a new creation. We, our eternal trajectory can have changed because of Jesus. And we may not be enjoying the full life. We may not have taken hold of the life that's truly life. And I think for those of us who are Christians, uh, the reason is, is we haven't really internalized on a heart level that we've been made new, that, that we have been given a new life in Christ. I think we kind of think, okay, I've checked my, you know, I've punched my ticket to heaven, and now in this life, I'm just kind of biding my time, or like I'm a slightly improved version of my old self, but, but I basically have the same outlook 
on life. My priorities are basically the same as they, they have been. And I don't view my past the way God views my past. My present calling isn't quite aligned with his calling. And my future hope, I haven't really let that change how I feel about myself and my life now. So how do we do this? How do we embrace and enjoy this life that is truly life? That's what we're going to explore in this series. And what we're going to do over the next several weeks is we've kind of arranged it in chronological order. We're going to start with our past, and then we're going to talk about our present life, and then we're going to talk about our future hope and and how in all of those arenas of our life we can embrace this life that's truly life. And so today we're going to start with our past. And in order to talk about our past, we have to talk about shame. Some of y'all are like, I knew I should have stayed home this morning. It's like, way to keep it light uh, on the start of this series. Um, so we're going to talk about shame. Um, but I promise it is, all, it is relevant for all of us. Now, when I said shame, uh, some of you felt nothing in particular. You don't have a sense of, you know, I've done anything shameful in my life. or There's nothing I feel particularly ashamed of. Um, uh, and so you don't feel like this, okay, I've got to deal with this. For others, though, in this room, you may uh, have felt a little uncomfortable when I introduced this topic because there is something in your life, in your past, that you feel ashamed of, and you wonder how God views it, how you should feel it. Um, It's not an easy subject, but I promise you'll be encouraged by the end of this. Um, Old Testament scholar David Atkinson has this definition of shame that I think is a really good one. Shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. And he's speaking, of course, in a biblical sense um, as a, a person that studies the scriptures and theology. Shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. And sometimes that expresses itself in just gen- in a, a general kind of indefinable way. I just sort of have this uneasiness. I'm not sure of my standing with God and kind of where I am. But sometimes, again, it's about something really specific that we have done that we feel ashamed of, or in some cases, something that was done to us that we feel shame about. And so we feel this sense of unease with ourselves, this sense of shame, and we respond to this in a lot of ways. Uh, Often we're trying to prove ourselves to God, like I'm going to overcome this thing that I did. I'm going to just make grand gestures and prove to God that I'm worthy of his love or going to prove to others that I'm worthy of their love and I'm just going to be the best person I can be or I'm going to find ways to just, I'm just desperate to just quiet that sort of guilty voice that I feel indicting me on a daily basis. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the origins of shame in Scripture, and this applies to all of us. And we're going to talk about how Jesus Christ liberates us from shame, because that is part of taking hold of the life that's truly life, is looking our shame in the eyes and seeing it the way Jesus does. So let's jump into Scripture together. Turn with me to Genesis 2. I think you know where Genesis is, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to here discover the origins of shame. Um, and then we're going we're to spend a, a few moments in Genesis, and then we're going to fast forward to a moment in Jesus' ministry where we see his voice and his heart on this subject of shame. So Genesis 2, we're in the midst of the creation account. God creates the universe. He creates the earth. 
He creates Adam. Everything is good. Everything is exactly as God intends it, except there's one thing that's not good, and it's that Adam is alone. Adam is not experiencing community in the way that God has always experienced community in himself as the Trinity, and he wants Adam to experience that. So he he creates Eve, and Adam and Eve are enjoying perfect union with each other and perfect union with God. Everything is how God intended it to be. And then in Genesis 2.25, we read this. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And, And so there's no reason to feel shame at this point in front of each other, in front of God. There's nothing to hide. There's no sense of insecurity. There's no sense of guilt. There's no sense of hiding. They feel no shame with each other, no shame with God. Everything is as it should be because God created a world without shame. He created us without shame. But we see the moment in uh, chapter 3, verse 6. That's where we're going to look next. Um, And following where sin barges into the world and drags shame along with it. So Genesis 3, 6, it says this. When the woman, this is the familiar story of of the, the fruit, eating the fruit. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Highlight that if you're taking notes. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, and highlight this question, who told you that you were naked? Of course, God had commanded. The one thing they couldn't do was eat this fruit. And they disobeyed God. They sinned. And and more than just a a mistake they made, what they did is, is they kicked open the doors and the floodgates opened and sin came into our, our world and polluted our lives and all of creation. And all of our lives since then are bent by sin. And, and God says, where are you? And it's this, I mean, he knows where they are. <laughs> it's not like he's seeking information. It is this heartbreaking expression of a relational chasm that has opened up between God and his creation. And Adam, aware of his sinfulness, feels shame, and Eve as well, about their nakedness. And then God asks this very remarkable rhetorical question, who told you that you're naked? This is the first human experience with shame. This is the first appearance of shame. Because with sin comes shame. And this is true for all of us. All of us have sinned, Romans tells us, and this is throughout Scripture, we see this. We have all sinned, and therefore, shame is a part of all of our backgrounds. It's a part of our story on some level. Regardless of how your past looks, regardless of whether you look at something in your past and say, I'm ashamed of that, shame is a part of all of our story because sin is a part of all of our story. 
We have all been marked by sin, and so we all have shame in our background. We all have that in common. It could not have been avoided because of what happened here. But right away, after this moment, the first appearance of shame, God gives us a glimpse that he will deal with sin and shame eventually. And we see this gesture in verse 21. It's easy to miss, but let's notice this. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. They felt shame because of their nakedness. They felt exposed. They felt insecure. And so God clothing them was an act of grace, even in the midst of enacting his justice and punishment against them. He's showing them grace. He's not shaming them in that moment. He is trying to actually spare them shame in the midst of of carrying out his justice against the sin that they've, that they've stepped into. This tells us God doesn't intend us to live in and experience shame throughout our lives and, and for that to be a dominant feeling that we feel in relationship to him. And if we're really paying attention when we read this, we see that there is a sacrifice here. There's a cost here. Because where did the garment of skin come from? An animal. Something had to die for God to cover their shame. And this is a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf to deal once and for all with our sin and our shame. We see that first glimmer of it right there. So let's fast forward now to Jesus' ministry. Turn with me to John chapter 8. Gospel of John is the fourth book in the New Testament. We're going to spend a moment here um, in the first um, uh, we're going to look starting in verse 2, actually, John 8, 2 through um, verse 11. This is a very familiar story, um, moment in Jesus' ministry, and it speaks exactly to this, this situation, this, this idea of shame. So uh, it says, verse 2, At dawn he appeared again, this is Jesus, in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now highlight this next phrase. They made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and said to them, and I would highlight what he says if you're taking notes, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So the religious leaders of the day bring this woman to Jesus in the temple, very large public open space. 
she's been caught in adultery. And make no mistake, that is definitely a sin. I mean, there's no question about that. They were correct in saying the law of Moses spoke to that. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You know, the, the people of Israel in the Old Testament era were called to embody God's holiness, and adultery was an offensive transgression against God's moral character. So this is a big deal. And breaking the marriage covenant in the Old Testament era, era carried the highest of penalties. And th- but we have to remember, this is in the time before Christ when people sort of had to pay the cost of their own sin, right? Through sacrifices and other things. And so they're, they're, the re- religious leaders are technically correct in the sense of she's committed this deeply serious offense. But they have sinned too, these leaders, because their hearts are corrupt, they're being judgmental, and they are shaming her, and they're parading her out in public. And by the way, they're not saying anything about the man with whom she did this. They're singling her out for public shame. So there's actually kind of two types of shame in this story. In a sense, she shamed herself through her actions, but also she is being shamed by these people. And also, you could argue there's a third level of shame here. The religious leaders themselves are shaming themselves by being so publicly prideful about this, cavalier in their condemnation of this woman, showing they don't think that they're as bad. They don't, they're not sinners in the way she is. And Jesus' response shows that they have shamed themselves in their actions Guys, you know, if, if you haven't sinned, fine. Pick up that rock right there and throw it. And he was making the point that, you know, y'all are sinful too. You're sinful in the way you're handling this situation and a whole other host of private ways that you're sinful that you know about and I know about, by the way. And so they sort of pathetically shuffle away. And then Jesus has this amazing exchange with the woman who's condemned you. And she says, well, they're gone. You know, they're not stoning me, so I guess nobody. And he says, no, I don't, I don't condemn you either. And he says, leave your life of sin. It's an act of grace. Because she actually does deserve consequences for what she did. But here Jesus is, God in the flesh, showing her grace, which is, again, undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. He's essentially saying to her, I don't condone what you've done. You have sinned. But to me, you are not just an embodiment of your worst moments. That's not who you are to me. To me, you are you. I made you. I know you. And I love you. And I have come to seek and save people just like you. I have more for you. And this is Jesus' heart toward us as well. You know, she was not a special case. This is Jesus' heart toward everybody who is, who is um, experiencing the effects of sin, captive to sin, ashamed of sin. So I want to do something for a moment um, just to kind of get us thinking along these lines. Everybody close your eyes for just a moment. I just want you to think for a moment. Think of something you've said in, in the past, something you've done. Or maybe something done to you that makes you feel shame. 
something, something you would do anything to take it back or to make the memory disappear. And I want you to imagine yourself for a moment in the position of the woman in this story. People are mocking you for what you've done. They're pointing at you. They're shaming you. They're saying, look at this person. Look what they did. Look what he said. Look what she did. Look what was done. And I want you to now imagine Jesus looking at you in that moment with unimaginable love in his eyes and saying to you, you are not your actions. You are you. I made you. I know you. I love you. I gave my life to free you from sin and shame. My grace is enough to cover what you've done. I see you as my precious child. You can open your eyes. Jesus, he takes away our sin, and in the process, he takes away our shame. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 10. He's he's talking about the process of becoming a Christian, placing your faith in Christ. And look what he says. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. In other words, you're making him Lord of your life. And you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. That means declared not guilty. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. To take hold of the life that's truly life, to understand what that means in part is to understand when Jesus saved you, he made you new and he dealt with your sin, which means he dealt with your shame. You are not defined by it. It is not who you are. Jesus' goodness, his righteousness has been applied to your account. You've been justified, as it says. That means legally declared not guilty because the penalty has been paid. As Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. Sin and shame has been dealt with. Sin and shame no longer defines you. Now, Satan will lie to you about this, and he will tell you that you are defined by your sin and your shame. And we believe the lie all the time. He is a liar. In fact, when Jesus spoke about Satan, he he said, when Satan lies, he speaks his native language because he is a liar and he is the father of lies. The story Satan tells you about yourself, which sometimes you think is your own story about yourself, but he is the originator of this lie. That story he tells about you is not true. So I want to just for a moment give you a little bit of a sense of how to tell the difference between God's voice and Satan's voice. When we sin, God does convict us of that. I mean, God's voice, the Holy Spirit, convicts us when we've, when we've sinned because, as described in the New Testament, we, we have acted out of step with our new identity. We have been made new in Christ. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And when we sin, We're not sinners by identity, but we have sinned and we've acted out of step with our identity in Christ. And God lets us know that he convicts us of that. And that leads us if we're listening and we're and we're sensitive to the spirit, it leads us to a place of repentance of saying, God, 
I'm sorry, would you forgive me? This, you know, I don't want to be this way. And God forgives us. And that is a good and healthy biblical place to be. But God's voice is speaking to our actions. You have, in this case, stepped out of line with who you are. He's not telling us who we are in those moments. He's saying you've done this, and that's out of step with who you are. Satan's voice, by contrast, is you're worthless. You're a lost cause, see? God's not really going to accept you. You're not good enough. And this leads to shame. Because Satan tears down your identity. He attacks your worth. And God does not do that. God is never going to attack your worth. Because in his eyes, you're worth everything. If you're in Christ, if you've been saved by Jesus, your story is not one of sin and shame. That is not your story. It's one of hope and of life. I mean, think about God's voice. To believers, to people who've been saved by him, he says, you are my precious child. You are a child of God. And even to non-believers, people who have no regard for God, God's voice is still, I want you to be my child. His voice is never a shaming voice. Jesus died to free us from sin and shame. Look how the psalmist put it in Psalm 103, speaking of God's character, uh, verses 8 to 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God does not weaponize your past against you. He is just, and he addresses sin according to his justice, and he has done so in Christ. But he is not in the business of shaming. I think sometimes we think of God, like going back to that picture of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, it's like we almost think of God in that scenario as the Pharisees. Like God's in the role of the Pharisees, shaming, condemning, and instead of thinking of God in the role of Jesus. And Jesus is God. If you want the closest approximation of how God thinks about us and our sin, it's Jesus in that scenario. But for some reason, we believe these lies that think that he's like the Pharisee in that moment. Look how the prophet Micah said, Micah 7, 18 and 19, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. They are gone because of what Jesus did. You know, outside of the Bible, I think one of the best stories of grace that we can find is the story of Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with the story, with the musical. Uh, This is Jean Valjean on the right, played there by Hugh Jackman in the the film from a few years ago. Um, Jean Valjean has been in prison for many years. He's recently been paroled, but he's already committing crimes again. His identity is that of a criminal. He thinks of himself that way. He's always been thought of that way. And he's taken in by this kind bishop who 
feeds him and puts a roof over his head and speaks kindly to him. But because he is so captive to his identity as a sinner and a criminal, overnight he steals all the silver from the bishop and and runs away. And he gets caught by the police the next day, and they know where the silver came from. So they, they haul him back into the monastery or the cathedral, and they bring him to the bishop, and they say, we caught this guy. He stole your silver. Here he is. He's going to give you his silver back, and then we're going to take him to jail. And the bishop says in that moment to him, you forgot the best silver. And he goes, and he grabs the candlesticks, and this is the moment where he hands it to him, and he says, take this. And he says to the police, no, it's a gift. You know, go. It's, it's fine. You don't have to take him to prison. And he, in that moment, really is giving his life back to him. And when the police leave, the bishop doesn't say, all right, give me all the silver back. You're lucky I didn't make you go to jail. Now, that would have been a merciful thing to do. But that's the difference between mercy and grace. Is not only did he not send him to jail, the punishment he deserved, he actually gave him the silver. After the police were gone, it wasn't like, oh, it's the story I told the police. You actually get to keep it all. And he says, use this. See, I want you to see a higher purpose in this. I want you to use this silver to become an honest man. And it's this unbelievable act of grace. And, and Valjean can't even comprehend it because he's been mistreated his whole life. His whole identity is that of a sinner, of a criminal. He's irredeemable. He's a shameful man. He says that his life was a war that could never be won. And then he sings this beautiful song about experiencing this grace and shame. And and so I want to put the lyrics up here. He says, I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He, he's talking about the bishop, told me I have a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? I'm reaching, but I fall. And the night is closing in as I stare into the void to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from that world. From the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. And I read that, and that sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul to me, who had been a persecutor of Christians, the worst, and then became a believer. And I think Paul's version of this song we see in Galatians 2.20. It's very Jean Valjean-like. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This was Paul saying, as Jean Valjean did, another story must begin. There is another story. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. He loves me. And Jesus is the one who died the shameful death for me, and I live my life because of that and based on that. And the story that Jesus tells about me is the true story, not the story I tell about myself or somebody else says about me or my past says about me. What Jesus says about me is the real story. As John put it in one of his letters, 1 John 3.20, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. The story Jesus tells about us is the true story. And if we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, your story is not one of sin and shame. It is a story of hope and life.